singing that extra, not an extra song, but um, something a little different that we're trying this year, uh, singing during, uh, during the offering while seated. So I know it's not the easiest thing in the world to sing while you're sitting down, but thank you for doing that. We're uh, just, Audrey and I talked and really want to emphasize congregational singing this year and how important that is. Um, the, the tone of the, uh, of the epistles in the New Testament is that we sing together corporately. Uh, and so it's a sweet thing to come in here on Sunday and gather and, and worship the Lord together in song. Uh, and so, uh, so that's what we're doing with just kind of that uh, offertory singing together. So thank you for participating in that. It's always a, a joy to hear everyone singing together. It's a good thing. Uh, so you can open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 14. It's on the screen there. I listened recently uh, to a story as a podcast uh, about a U.S. soldier who was serving in Afghanistan in 2009, and he was captured by the Taliban in 2009, and uh, there's a lot of controversy surrounding him, but that's not the point of what I'm telling you this morning. He was captured in 2009 and was held in captivity by the Taliban until 2014. They said that his captivity was one of the worst situations that he was held in in the modern era is, is the way that the experts described it after he got back. Uh, he was released in 2014 as part of a prisoner exchange uh, with the Taliban. But he spent so much of the five years that he was in captivity in complete isolation, social isolation. Uh, someone would bring him food a couple of times a day, but by and large, he was locked in a dark room by himself. And even the people that were bringing him food, sometimes it would be small children, sometimes it would be soldiers, but they didn't speak English, and obviously they were his captors, so there wasn't a whole lot of positive social interaction going on there. When he was released, uh, some special forces went in and made the exchange, and they flew him from Afghanistan to Germany, to a U.S. military hospital there, hospital there to treat him and bring him back to health. He was, you know, in a pretty bad spot. Um, but one of the things that they were prepared for was to try to reintegrate him back into normal human contact. Uh, and after spending that long in captivity, he had some really odd habits that he'd picked up from just you know, lack of interaction with people. They were prepared for him to be mentally unstable and in need of relearning what it looks like to, uh, to socialize with other people on a day-to-day -day basis. Why were they prepared for that? I mean, that sounds, actually sounds kind of natural to us. It makes sense to us, but why? Why, after five years of almost complete social isolation, why would we need to reintegrate into that? Well, it's because you and I are designed to live with other people. I mean, we take that for granted in many ways, but we are designed to be with other people and to live among other people and to interact with other people. Isolation from others is one of the most difficult and tragic situations that you can put a person in. You've all heard about children that are cut off from love and care of adults and, and are in social isolation and the, the dramatic physical and psychological impact that has on people. Now, I, I know some of you this morning are thinking, I'm so busy that most days I just wish I could have five minutes of social isolation. And I understand that, I get it, but extended abandonment from others causes all kinds of issues and difficulties. 
And that's been proven time and time again. And of course, we, we recognize our need for human interaction, but you and I were designed for a deeper type of interaction and relationship. And obviously, that was to live in God's presence and to live with him in relationship with him. And so you have both of those that are important for our well-being, living with others and living in the presence of God. One of the most tragic results of the fall was that Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden, and they were pushed out of the presence of God and were no longer in close communion with him like they had been. And so I think in each person, there's an underlying longing for that sense of God's presence. And many times people can't articulate that longing, but will never be fully satisfied and never truly live well without that sense of God's presence and that connection with him. And our ultimate desire, even if we can't articulate it, is to be brought back into relationship with him and into his presence. Now, obviously, you know that the work of Jesus Christ is intended to bring us back into God's presence and into relationship with him. The goal of the work of Christ is to bring you and I into the communion of the triune God. The love that is experienced between the Father and the Son through the Spirit, you and I are intended to participate in that love and to be brought into that communion and to be there for all of eternity. That is ultimately what you and I were designed for. Now, obviously, the work of Jesus to bring you back into that relationship can't be accomplished without him taking our isolation from God and our being cut off from God's presence on himself. He takes our abandonment and then he brings us and gives us his relationship with the Father. Keep in mind these words from Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Both the human abandonment and the smiting by God, the abandonment by God, are spoken of here in this text in Isaiah 53. And so today we're going to consider the way in which Jesus took our abandonment from God on himself and it's in Mark chapter 14, verses 26 to 52. And when we come to this text, particularly the heart of this text with the Garden of Gethsemane experience, people have a hard time describing what's happening here. I mean, some people have said this is like walking on holy ground. I mean, it is a great mystery to us. It doesn't really make sense what goes on here, but in some ways, beyond the mystery, it does shine a light on exactly what it costs Jesus to bring salvation to you and I. And it cost him a great deal. For you and I to be sitting here confident that we are redeemed and that we are in the presence of God and we can sing and worship him in the way that we do. So Mark 14, 26 to 52, we're gonna see three reasons Jesus was abandoned for us. A very simple topic this morning in some ways, simply stated, but complex beyond all measurement to understand. Three reasons Jesus was abandoned for us. The first one of these is he was abandoned to purify the disciples. And this is in verses 26 to 31. 
Now keep in mind here as we get to this passage where we are in the story of Jesus's final hours. He's just celebrated the Passover meal late on Thursday evening with his disciples, and he has sort of reconstituted that meal around himself. He is the final Passover lamb who will be offered for sin. That will bring about the new exodus of God's people out of slavery and walking toward the promised land. And so he's just done that. And look at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, singing was a very normal part of the Passover meal. And they would sing uh, the Hallel Psalms, which are Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. Be helpful to go read those at some point. But traditionally, Psalm 113 and Psalm 114 were sung before the meal, and then Psalm 115 through 18 were sung after the meal. So there's a reasonable chance that we know exactly what Jesus and the others were singing. Interestingly, Psalm 118 has several messianic allusions to it. So they would have sung that. But whatever they sung, they did, and they headed out of the city proper and up the to the eastern side of the city, through the Kidron Valley, and to the Mount of Olives. I'm sure you're very familiar with the the Mount of Olives. Now, just a side note here, Judas, uh, we don't read in Mark, but had already left the meal, and this location would have been prearranged, and so he knew about this, and he knew where to find Jesus. So it's quite late at night, apparently, here, and as they're walking along, Jesus engages the disciples in conversation. Look at verse 27. And he goes right for it here, doesn't he? And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Now, if you're the disciples and you're listening to this, you know that Jesus has already shown you this uncanny ability to predict what will happen. I mean, he's, he's already told them about uh, finding the upper room, and they'll see a man with a, a water jug on his head, and they know that that came true. And so he's predicted the betrayal of one of the disciples who will come along and betray him to the authorities there. And now Jesus is saying that it's not just going to be one of the disciples who will betray him, but all of them will fall away, and all of them will abandon him. What he's saying here is they're all going to stumble into sin or they're going to take offense at Jesus because of who he is and because of what's going to happen to him. And you can see here that he grounds this prediction, not just in his own foreknowledge of what's going to happen, but he actually grounds this prediction in the Old Testament. I mean, look back at verse 27. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I'm sure you have a cross-reference in your Bible that the passage that he's quoting here is from Zechariah 13. Now, Zechariah 9 through 14, the whole kind of last half, last section of the book of Zechariah have very much to do with God's restoration of his people and the coming Messiah. And so Jesus here quotes from this portion of the book. Now, if you're thinking about the whole gospel of Mark, you know that this portion of the book has already been quoted. When Jesus came into Jerusalem on the donkey, the triumphal entry, this is the passage that was referred to there. He came into the city on a donkey. And so Zechariah 9 through 14 proclaimed the coming Messiah as a king who will enter the city humbly. But another image that this 
section of Zechariah uses to describe the Messiah is of a shepherd. And when that portion of text uses this image of a shepherd, it talks about God striking that shepherd down. And so the picture of Messiah is starting to be filled out in Zechariah 9 through 14, and Jesus uses several of those images and applies them to himself. Let's read that verse, verse 7. Read all of it. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Maybe the disciples were familiar with this text. Maybe they weren't. But regardless, they are a part of this whole experience, a part of what's going to happen. They are the sheep who will be scattered. They are the little ones. God will turn his hand against them. This would have been disheartening, but if you keep reading in Zechariah, there's also something else that is going to take place because of this action of striking the shepherd and the sheep scattering. Look what the end result is for the disciples because of what Jesus is predicting here. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. They will say, the Lord is my God. And so even in quoting this text and predicting something that is really dire for the disciples, If you keep reading, there's the expectation that God is not going to abandon them and leave them all alone. God will ultimately bring them back, and through this experience, he will purify them, and he will make them whole and bring them into relationship with him. You can even see this in Mark chapter 14. Look what Jesus says in verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He knows that their falling away is not going to be turning from him forever, that they're ultimately going to be reunited with him in Galilee, and they're going to be restored. Now, the question here is, why would the disciples need purification? Well, look how Peter responds to this in verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. This is kind of what we've come to expect from Peter. You can see the hubris here the arrogance of this statement. It's like he's saying, Jesus, you don't even know me. You don't know who you're talking to. These guys may be weak enough to fall away, but I'm better than the rest of them. I'm not going to fall away. Jesus responds to Peter, to this show of arrogance in verse 30. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Things get even worse for Peter, and he only ups it a little bit. Look at verse 31. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the rest of the disciples are carried along with him in their confidence in themselves. And they all said the same. And this actually makes sense with what we've seen of the disciples in the Gospel of Mark. They're not really understanding who Jesus is. They're not understanding his sacrifice for them, that you lose your life to gain it, that there's humility that is necessary for followers of Jesus. And so here it seems like their hearts are hard. 
and even arrogant at times, and they need humility. And they're going to get it, and they're going to experience the Lord giving it to them. We have a dear friend in Lynchburg who uh, always tells Bethany that she prays for me to be humble. Um, And I've told Bethany several times to ask her to stop doing that. (laughs) But ultimately, it is an important thing to pray. And obviously, you know, it is an important quality to possess. And I'm thankful for it because this sort of arrogance is a soul-destroying sin. And it's so subtle. And it gets into our hearts. And it shapes everything about who we are. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said about pride. There is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. That is terrifying. (laughs) And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. According to the Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And so even if it's hard, and it's certainly going to be hard for the disciples here, and even if it's hard for you and I, to be purified of pride is the gracious gift of God. And so often, like Peter here, we don't see it in ourselves. We are incapable of recognizing it, and we need someone else to help us see it. And God's going to point it out to them in a big way here, particularly Peter. And so Jesus was abandoned by those closest to him so that they could grow in humility, so that their hearts could be purified. And if the disciples could stumble and could demonstrate pride on this level, even as they're walking with Jesus like this, then certainly you and I are susceptible to this as well. And we need purification just like the disciples too. And purification only comes through propitiation. The satisfaction of God's wrath, the sacrifice offered on our behalf, and that's our second reason that Jesus was abandoned for us to purify the disciples, and to satisfy God's wrath. So once they have this conversation, they're walking along, and they get to the Mount of Olives, they go to a place that is apparently well-known to Jesus. Look at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. Apparently they'd been there many times before. Gethsemane, uh, the word actually... It's talking about an oil press, um, a place that is probably in the middle of an olive orchard. And so the olive oil would have been pressed there, and we don't know exactly what this place looked like, but chances are it had a wall around it. It was an enclosure to some extent, but it was in the middle of an olive orchard, and it was a place that Jesus and his disciples went with some regularity. And so the 12 minus Judas are with him, and so he leaves most of them to pray on their own. Look at the rest of verse 32. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. But then he goes on and he takes his inner circle a little bit farther with him. Verse 33. And he took with him Peter and James and John. 
And then look what the rest of this verse says. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Mark begins describing the emotional state of Jesus here, and it is not good. See if I can paint this picture for you. There's two words that are used in our English Bible here, distressed, greatly distressed, and troubled. The first one of these gives us the idea of being alarmed. And we don't often think of Jesus as being alarmed or shocked. But this is the same word that's used of the women when they go to the tomb in Mark 16, and the the stone has been rolled away, and they look inside the tomb, and there's an angel sitting there in white. Now, you can imagine the shock and the alarm and the fear that would happen in your heart if you had that experience. That's the word that is used here of Jesus in this moment. Something unexpected has come before him. The second word here that he was troubled means he was experiencing a very strong and deep anxiety. He's deeply unsettled at what lies before him. And so he explains this to his inner circle, and he asks for their help. Look at verse 34. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And so there's another word here that's used to describe his emotional state. This time it's sorrowful. He is so sad, extremely sad. And I think here, this, the way this is phrased, even to death, doesn't mean he's so sad that he's going to die because of his sadness, although that could have been true. I think what it's saying here is he's looking ahead to his death, and the prospect of his death is making him extremely sad. And he feels hedged in on every side, and there's like there's nothing he can do about it, and it's quickly approaching, and it's shocking, and it's unsettling, and he's fearful and anxious over it. And so with all three of those terms together, you get this picture of Jesus in this moment being emotionally and spiritually stretched to the limit. So he leaves his inner circle and he goes on ahead of them a little ways and he falls down. Look at verse 35. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Now, we've seen Jesus pray before in the Gospel of Mark, but we've not gotten the specifics of what he prays. And so here, he's in unimaginable emotional turmoil. He's crying out to the Father, and he's asking that he might be delivered from the hour. He uses that language specifically, the hour might pass from him. What is the hour that he is concerned about? It's the hour of his approaching death. It's the hour, the time that he has been predicting. He told his disciples in chapters 8 through 10 three times that this would happen, that he would go to Jerusalem and he would be delivered into the hands of the high priests and the Sanhedrin and that they would kill him. And this is that hour. It has come upon him here. And it's so close that he begins to pray to the Father that if there's any way possible, he might be delivered from that hour. So when you read this, we need to think really carefully about what's going on here. What has Jesus so emotionally distressed and shocked? I mean, the language that I've just used to describe the second person of the Trinity in in a human body is probably shocking to you. He's emotionally unsteady at this moment. 
what's, what's going on here? Is he looking forward and anticipating the crucifixion and the physical pain that will happen at the crucifixion, and that has him this unsettled? Is he looking ahead and thinking, I'm going to die? And that very thought of death has him this anxious and this shocked and this unsettled. Now, if you think about that, if it's death, there have been countless people through the centuries who have approached the very moment of their death, and they have done it with a lot more confidence than this, if that's what's going on with Jesus. A lot more courage than this. And so I don't think that Jesus is just looking ahead and thinking, I'm going to die, and he's this unsettled about his coming death. I think it's much more than that that has him responding in this way. And so to find out why he's so upset, we need to look at verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so he addresses God the Father here with a very intimate name, and it's in both Aramaic, the Abba part, and then the Father part is in Greek. This doesn't mean daddy, regardless of what you may have heard. It's not what this means, but it is a close name of affection between Jesus and the Father. And so what is his specific request? He says, remove this cup from me. What's the cup? Well, the cup, of course was God's just judgment over sin in the Old Testament. It was a metaphor for God pouring out his wrath and his judgment for sin on people, specific groups of people. Isaiah 51, 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup, of staggering. Israel was given the cup of God's wrath to drink because of their covenant unfaithfulness, because over the centuries they had completely disobeyed the Lord over and over again. He'd given them a covenant in the Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy, and they had violated that covenant and they had worshiped other gods. And so the cup of God's wrath filled up and he poured that judgment out on the people of Israel. And they were forced to drink it. But it wasn't just Israel who was pictured in the Old Testament as drinking from the cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah 25. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. And if you keep reading in this passage, it actually lists the nations out, Egypt and Babylon and others. And so it wasn't just Israel who would receive the cup of God's just anger and judgment for sin. It was everyone who had committed sin, Israel and the nations. And so when Jesus comes to the garden here, he's not staggering and collapsing to the ground in light of the physical suffering that he's going to endure on the cross, although that is significant. He comes to the garden here, and for the first time, he peers over the edge of the cup, the cup of God's judgment and wrath over sin, and he understands that he will be drinking that cup for people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation on earth. 
And so here in the garden, Jesus is beginning to understand and to bear the weight of sin and of death and of separation and abandonment by God. Now, God's not angry with Jesus because he's the beloved son, but he's treating him as if he is the one carrying the weight of sin and Jesus will do this alone. And so he, he comes to the garden here to be with his father in intimate communion and he finds the cup of God's wrath in front of him. And this is the experience that will culminate in the cry on the cross of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? J. Oswald Sanders said this, he drank a cup of wrath without mercy, that we might drink a cup of mercy without wrath. The agony was not the fear of death, but the deep sense of God's wrath against sin that he was to bear. His pure and holy nature shrank, not from death as death, but from death as a curse for the world's sin. But in the midst of this, in the face of this, I want you to notice two phrases that are beside this request to remove this cup from me. Verse 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So on the one hand, Jesus acknowledges that everything is possible for God the Father. And on the other hand, he commits his human will to the Father and says, I will do whatever you ask me to do. This is an incredible act of faith and obedience. Jesus is staring sin and death in the face here, and he's not shrinking from it, but he's committing his will to the Father in obedience. Hebrews chapter 5, I think, describes this experience. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It's this obedience here that begins here in the garden by Jesus' human will that ultimately secures our righteousness. This is why you and I are called righteous. He obeys on our behalf, and he drinks the cup of God's wrath for us. Now, as he's having this experience, he has brought three of his closest disciples to be with him during this time. And I want you to remember specifically who these three are, Peter, James, and John. Peter, in chapter 8, confidently confronted Jesus when he first told them that he was going to die. And James and John, remember, they, their mother asked for them to be seated at his right and left hand in his kingdom, and they told him they were able to drink of the cup that he would drink and be baptized with the baptism with which he would be baptized. So if anyone could be his support system during this time, you would think it would be those three guys, right? Look what happens, verse 37. 
And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He tells them to watch and pray because they're going to face significant trials over the next few days, aren't they? And I think this this word here, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, I think he's saying that for their benefit and for his own. I think that's what he's experiencing during this time as well. And he tells them to watch and pray. This is the same command that is given in chapter 13, where we talked about the future coming of the Lord. And our posture during the the middle is to be people who watch. We're vigilant. We're active. We're preparing ourselves for his coming. It's the same command that is given here. Watch and pray. And so after waking them up, Jesus goes back again in verse 39. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And he comes back again. Verse 40, and he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. And I think when he says that, I think what he's saying there is not that you've slept enough. I think what he's saying is I'm ready. I'm prepared. My will is committed to the Father. I know what's going to take place, and I'm ready to give myself in full obedience to him. It is enough. The hour has come. It's here. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And this brings us to our third reason Jesus was abandoned for us, to carry our sorrows. Verses 43 to 52. We'll go quickly through this section, but here we see the realization of what Jesus has predicted all along. Look at verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. There's a contingent of people that are armed here, and they're from three different groups, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. These are the groups that make up the Sanhedrin. So this is the official delegation from the Sanhedrin that's come to take him in, the religious ruling body in Israel. The agreement with Judas worked. Judas brought him to the right place. Let's continue reading, verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. A kiss was not atypical. It was a sign of greeting and of friendship. And they had prearranged for Judas to do this. Verse 45, and when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. In all of this, though, I want to draw your attention to what Jesus says in verse 48. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Think about this situation. The Sanhedrin have sent a huge delegation of armed men in the middle of the night to go and capture a teacher and to bring him in. And Jesus makes note of this and draws everyone's attention to this. They are treating him like a thief, like a criminal, like a robber, like an actual criminal, someone who had done things wrong and needed to be brought in by force. What has he done? Look at verse 49. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. 
Jesus had spent time debating with them in the temple, healing people, doing good works, but they're treating him here like a criminal. He is certainly not a criminal, but he's being treated like one, and ultimately he will be crucified between two criminals on the cross. Now, why will he allow himself to be treated this way? Look at the rest of verse 49. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. He was treated this way so that you and I could be treated as innocent. Let me remind you again of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He will be condemned as a criminal to die so that you and I might live and go free. He will be abandoned by the Father in the garden and on the cross so that you and I can enter into God's presence. And he will be abandoned by everyone closest to him. Look at verse 50. And they all left him and fled. This is exactly what he predicted in verse 27, isn't it? Look back there. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. All his disciples leave, they flee, they run. And in some ways, what other choice did they have? But it's not just his disciples who leave him. We have this crazy little story in verses 51 and 52. The only streaker mentioned in the Bible. Look there. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. People have debated this story and the identity of this individual for years. And I'm not here to like break the, you know, the, the ceiling on this and tell you who this is or anything like that. There's all sorts of questions about him. Some people have said this is actually the gospel writer, Mark. And so he's putting himself in the story and showing that he was close to the events at hand. So it was him. Obviously, we don't, we don't know for sure. But why is this here? Why insert this here? Is this just random? And I think what Mark is trying to show here is that Jesus was completely abandoned by everyone, his disciples certainly, but even those who were sort of watching at a distance, they didn't want anything to do with him. This guy had some association with Jesus. I mean, they, he had enough of an association with him for the soldiers to seize him and recognize him as being someone who was close enough. But even in that moment, he takes off and he runs. Everybody is gone. There's literally no one left with Jesus. And he's been abandoned by everyone, and he will suffer alone and carry our sorrows alone. So I have to admit, it's a sobering thing to try to explain what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, you've got all sorts of doctrines coming to bear on this. This will be discussed in centuries following the death of Christ regarding the Trinity and the relationship between the Father and the Son. And it's really hard to understand and fathom the pain and the anguish that the Son went through in this moment. What was it like for a human being 
to carry the weight of the sin of so many people on his shoulders and to bear the wrath of God. What was it like when he looked into the cup of God's wrath and saw that and knew that that would be happening to him in a matter of hours on the cross? What was it like to have experienced his relationship with the Father for all of eternity and have the Father in this moment treat him as if he were a criminal? I can't explain all of that to you. I don't know how all of it works. But I do know that our response in this moment when we're looking at this is twofold. It's faith, and it's faith that leads us to worship. We believe what is said here in order to understand, and when we understand, then we worship. And I found a little poem that I think captures the essence of this really, really well. John Stott wrote this in his book on the atonement. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us. He hung and suffered there. And I think that's the key part, believing that it was for us, that he was abandoned for us, that he suffered for us so that you and I could be in relationship and in the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at what we read here. This is one of the most mysterious passages of Scripture in many ways. And yet, as we read it, even if we don't understand exactly what happened in all the details, we do know for certain that our Lord Jesus took our sin upon himself, that he drank that cup on our behalf. He hung on the cross so that we could go free. He was treated as a criminal so that we could be freed from guilt and from condemnation and from separation from you for all of eternity. And so I pray that our response this morning would be one of belief and trust in this gospel that we've just proclaimed. And I pray that it would be one of worship, of honor to you for loving us to the point where you did this for us, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.